Hey everybody, this is Mayor Matt Seal of the great city of Osceola, Georgia. For years now, I've hosted a podcast called Small Town Podcast, which is focused on shining the light on some great small towns that you may have overlooked. Small town living is great, and I've gotten the opportunity to meet some incredible local leaders who live and lead in their small towns all over. Something I noticed along the way and that I've had a desire to talk about is the rural revitalization that I believe is well underway. Business is challenging in rural areas for sure, but that is not stopping small towns and rural communities from overcoming challenges and growing in prosperity and in quality of life. I wanted to tell these stories, so now I've started a new podcast. This podcast, Green Shoots. This is the first episode, and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Green Shoots is supported by the Georgia Rural Center. Georgia's Rural Center exists to build healthy, vibrant rural Georgia communities with managed support and collaborative partnerships. To find out more about what they do and what they might be able to do for your rural community, visit RuralGA.org. Green Shoots is sponsored by Georgia Grown. As a division of the Georgia Department of Agriculture, Georgia Grown helps grow local agribusinesses. You can learn more and shop hundreds of Georgia businesses from the comfort of your home by visiting georgiagrown.com. Georgia knows best. Georgia grows best. Georgia Grown. Rural is dying. Rural is dead. I hear people say that sometimes. The plight of the agricultural community that most of America identified with in the centuries gone by is now seen as a sad story. You read and hear about this in news stories. You often witness small towns and rural communities mocked in pop culture. It's true that more people live in metropolitan areas than rural areas in America now. You might look at those statistics alone and come to the conclusion that rural America is dying, that it's just a matter of time. But there's another side to the story. Rural areas may not be the quickest to change as the world changes. This sometimes creates a disparity in economic growth, and some people think that the rural-urban divide can never be spanned. But maybe you should think again. After a devastating natural event like a forest fire or a volcano, it may look like all life has been wiped out. But then we see something that seems miraculous. We see the green shoots. New life coming where all hope seemed to be lost. Revitalization. From the green shoots comes forth a lush forest and life returns with vigor. Sometimes devastation is economic coming in the form of widespread layoffs, business closures, and even regional and national recessions and depressions that wipe out immense amounts of jobs and wealth, economic carnage from which it may have seemed there could be no recovery. Since the early 1990s, economists and business reporters would often ask after such a devastating event, where are the green shoots? And when some bit of positive news can be reported, they might ask, are these the green shoots? As if to hope for the return of a new and revitalized economic life. I've traveled through a lot of small towns and rural communities in my life's journey, and I can honestly tell you, rural communities have seen better days. There are struggles and challenges that seem overwhelming at times. The problems seem big, but ironically, the solutions are small. Small steps forward, small business success, small but sustainable gains in job creation and overall growth. A family farm attracts tourism, A traditional company finds a new way to innovate, 
I've seen the work ethic and the innovation in action in many rural communities. Small towns are making a comeback. Where it may have appeared to be devastated, revitalization now emerges, and I'm ready to show you the green shoots. I'm Mayor Matt Seal. Come go with me. Green Shoots is sponsored by the Georgia Development Authority. The Georgia Development Authority's mission is to create opportunities for Georgia farmers. GDA strives to help Georgia farmers create better opportunities for themselves and their agribusiness by providing insured farm loans to qualified applicants and also providing scholarships to invest in the next generation of farmers. To find out more about their programs and to see how the Georgia Development Authority is helping to ensure a bright future in Georgia's agriculture, visit gdaonline.com. When I started thinking about creating a podcast featuring rural business success stories, it was really inspired by a family that I've gotten to know very well in my community of Osceola, Georgia in Irwin County. It's the Polk family, and they grow, sell, and even process, in many ways, muscadines. In fact, Polk Vineyards is the largest muscadine vineyard in the entire world. But I'm getting ahead of myself. First, I'd like you to meet my good friend, Chris Polk. Hi, I'm Chris Polk. I'm the sixth generation on our family's farm here in Irwin County and the third generation involved with our Muscadine Vineyard. I met Chris when we both attended Georgia Tech together. We were fraternity brothers in the Beta Alpha chapter of the Theta Xi fraternity. Chris assumed that he would eventually move back to the place where he grew up, at least somewhere later in life, <laughs> but he never would have guessed how soon after college that would be or what the future would hold for him in Muscadines. But first, just in case you don't know what a Muscadine is, Let's give you a little backstory. Muscadines are America's native grape. They've been here forever. Sir Walter Raleigh wrote about muscadines when he landed in, in North Carolina. Ponce de Leon wrote about muscadines when he landed in Florida. They grow throughout the Southeast, just everywhere, in the woods, all over. And they are different than other grapes, though. Those folks documented eating muscadines they also did not document eating other grapes because other grapes don't grow here. And so, you know, when you think about grapes, though, through the, through the millennia, you think about the Mediterranean area and, you know, where all of history began or whatever. And so those are very different than muscadines. And it's a drier climate. It's not 90 degrees with 90% humidity. Muscadines thrive in this hot, humid climate. And for that, they've developed characteristics different than other grapes. So over the years, though, over the really centuries, muscadines have, you know, as people settled here in the United States and they would start planting a garden or something like that, they would grow muscadines here in the South. They would grow muscadines in the backyard. And up until 50 years ago, that's what they were, was a backyard grape. You know, they would eat them as a fruit, but they would maybe make homemade wine or they would make muscadine jelly and that kind of thing. It wasn't something you could find in stores. Starting roughly 50 years ago, people started planting muscadines as something you could grow on your farm as a business. And about 100 years ago, I guess, the University of Georgia started its muscadine breeding program. In the early 1900s, they started developing new varieties of muscadines. I say it as a blanket statement, but there are 
probably well over a hundred varieties of muscadines. And there are dark varieties of muscadines that people refer to as purple or red. And for our sake, I'll say purple, because that's what I say most often. And then there's white, what I say most often, or green, bronze, okay, the lighter colors. And they're, just like you see red grapes and green grapes, they're purple muscadines and white muscadines. Because of the nostalgia of muscadines and the history and the, the relaxed nature that people, you know, they grow them in the backyard and eat them on the porch and that kind of thing, there's a lot of, there are a lot of slang terms associated with muscadines. And so, like with the white varieties, they call them scupnons or scuppernongs. And that is a particular, there is a scuppernong variety named after the Scuppernong River that's in North Carolina. And even that has historical significance because it's been said and, and documented that that word scuppernong, when translated, literally is sweet tree or sweet bay tree. So what they thought was maybe the, where the Native Americans were eating the muscadines, the vines were growing up into trees and so it made for a sweet tree. So a lot of history with muscadines and that's some of the terms that you'll hear you know, scuppernongs and muscadines. And people ask, you know, is a scuppernong a muscadine? Yes, scuppernongs are muscadines. They're all muscadines. You know, the genus and species is Vitis rotundifolia. If you, you know, go and look that up, Vitis rotundifolia. But it encompasses all of those hundred and some odd varieties of muscadines of the purple and the white. And there are varieties that are grown for, when you plant a vine in the ground, it's there for a certain purpose. So as a commercial vineyard, then you would grow it. You know, you would get certain varieties for making wine, where you wouldn't plant other varieties for making wine. Although they're muscadines, but they're different. You Different characteristics. And vice versa, if you're wanting to grow muscadines for a U-Pick, you know, to have like a roadside market or to sell commercially, you know, muscadines to grocery stores, you would plant other varieties. So that's just a, a little bit of the different varieties and kind of the just the scope of all the kinds of muscadines that there are. Like I mentioned earlier, the climate in here in the South is unlike any other. And because of that, muscadines have developed unique characteristics than other grapes. And so you thrive in this hot, humid climate, you just develop, I guess, maybe tougher characteristics than other other climates and you know other grapes would in other climates so physically muscadines have a thick skin and they are seeded where you may eat other grapes that have a thinner skin and muscadines have a slip skin so the skin slips away from the grape where other grape skins don't necessarily do that but along the way starting 20 25 years ago 30 years ago universities and uh, researchers discovered that muscadines have higher levels of antioxidants and other phytochemicals that other grapes don't have or don't have as high levels as muscadines. And so, in short, muscadines are like a super grape and a super berry that God gave us right here in the South. That, you know, they have characteristics that you associate, you think about you know, people drinking red wine, or you think about grapeseed extract. Yes, muscadines have those benefits, and then some. It's like this best of both worlds, and so it's really exciting to see the research that's 
progressed through the years, you know, where University of Georgia has done some research and then NC State would see that and they would build on that and Clemson University has done some research for different applications and FAMU and Tallahassee and University of Florida and Texas A&M and then most recently there was a really big research project out of Wake Forest and investigating some really, I mean these are research projects that could really tremendously benefit human health. So it's been really exciting for our family to play a role in this Muscadine story. All right, now that you have the Muscadine story, let me introduce you to the Polk Vineyard story. I didn't actually grow up in what is now my hometown of Osceola, Georgia. Visits I made to the family farm of the Polks, eventually resulting in me moving to Osceola, where I now serve as the mayor, allowed me to watch this story unfold firsthand. It's a story of farming, yes, but it's also a story of vision, innovation, and later job creation and agritourism in a rural community. And what an incredible story it is. So, Chris, I know this story, but I want you to, to tell it for, for the recording, for the audience. Yeah. You were born and raised in Irwin County, so to take us through what life was like on the farm a little bit, and then when, when you left... And I don't know what, you know, how, how, how long you thought it was going to be before you might come back. So tell, tell us a little bit about your story. Yeah, so I, I grew up right here in, on the farm. And I guess through school I was interested in math and science and always kind of expressed an interest in making things. And so I had my sights set on Georgia Tech. I can remember getting a, a little a T-shirt when I was young, and nobody gets Georgia Tech T-shirts. No, 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 down Georgia. Here. Go Jackets. Yeah, so so <laughs> I said I applied to one college, and and I went to Georgia Tech, and and when I was there, I was determined to get a degree in engineering, and I figured that civil was my best bet to stay outside a little bit and maybe design something that doesn't move and or shouldn't move, and then, <laughs> and then. Yeah, I said, well, I'll just, I'll be an engineer, a civil engineer, and I can do that all over the state, maybe even live in rural Georgia, but so it doesn't have to be in the big city. So since I know uh, kind of where the story goes from here, I'm going to ask the question for you to present it like this. How long did you think you would stay somewhere else besides the farm in Irwin County? And then tell the audience how long it actually lasted before you came Oh, yeah. Back. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so when I graduated, I thought, okay, well, I'll be an engineer, living in Atlanta, making somewhere like that, and then... Uh, then one day, someday, I don't know, a couple of decades from now, I'll set up shop maybe, you know, as an independent consultant or something and, and work from home down here in South Georgia. Graduated, started working with a firm, actually worked with the state immediately after graduating from college. And then within six months, my grandfather said, hey, I, there's an opportunity to do something on the farm. You want to quit that job and come home? Come on home. Now talk about Papa Jacob a little bit, and then kind of maybe some of the conversations you had, if there were some, I'm sure there were, along those lines before that infamous phone call he made to call you back home. Yeah. So Papa Jacob, he was uh, extremely visionary. I mean, he he started. He grew muscadines before muscadines were a thing, and it was something people grew in their backyard. So he pioneered a fresh fruit industry around muscadines. Now, since most of you listening are not from around here, Papa Jacob is Jacob Willis Polk, Chris's grandfather. And since Chris wasn't quite around yet when Papa Jacob started pioneering this new industry, I spoke with someone who was there, Chris's father, Gary Polk, who, as you might have guessed, is also involved with the farming operation here. But in 19, I think it was 70, well, I was... I was in the, the eighth grade when Daddy planted the first grapes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, let's, let's talk about that. Okay. That's, and I'm just to 
I think it was 1973, somewhere right. around that mm-hmm. time frame. You said that uh, that was right. that was when he started doing it as a as a cultivator. Right, I mean, pulp bangers, yeah. Muscadines, uh, muscadines have have grown wild for literally centuries. Right. Talk about, I guess, how how he got started, why he got started. That well, was to, um, to do something like that that no one had done before. Had right. So there was a retired county agent, Mr. J. E. Legere, who had started a nursery, a, a nursery in Osceola, and he was propagating blueberries and grapes. So my dad and him were good friends, and he went to Mr. Legere and he said, "What did he think we could grow in Irwin County that would be indigenous to Irwin, native to Irwin, and make money doing?" So Blueberries require acid soil, which is a low pH below seven. And so most of our soil had been limed because we'd typically be growing peanuts and cotton and other crops. So the pH of our soil, rocky pebble, sandy loams, tifted loams, those type soils were not conducive to growing blueberries because they were not acidic. Acidic would be more like a new ground or it'd be more acid. So blueberries were out of the question. And so he said, well, muscadine grapes grow wild. Why don't we try muscadines? At that time, at the, the Griffith Experiment Station, University of Georgia, there was a uh, professor up there, Dr. Fry, who had come out with some really new muscadine varieties. I was about to say, I think there's a muscadine variety called Fry. Yeah, that, that's right. It was <laughs> named after him. He had done some isotopes with radiation and had, had more or less created this Fry variety that was very huge, very large, and very atypical from what we had been growing. Yeah. And so it made the, with that and other things, it just looked like it was a possibility. So daddy planted about five acres of muscadines and my uncle planted about five acres of muscadines and it just started from there. So we started picking them and then at that time we were just using, you know, the family labor and some of the regular help that were on the farm to harvest them. And then we got more sophisticated with it. We were just picking in buckets and then we got picking harnesses and it just kind of evolved. Our first cooler was an old smokehouse that my granddaddy had that daddy put a window air conditioner in. Mm-hmm. Pour the concrete on the floor and it'd get about 50 degrees, about as cold as it would get. Mm-hmm. And then everything was hand loaded and unloaded. And But daddy would go from, get a, just get a pickup load of grapes, maybe 50 boxes and go to a grocery store and say, hey, you want to buy these? You think they'll sell? And some people would turn him down and most of the time, it's on consignment. I'll, right. leave, I'll leave you five boxes, and you if sell you sell them, you, sell yeah. them you pay me. If you don't, you don't owe me a dime. I'll come back around in a week, collect my money, give you save you some more, or you just tell me you pick up the ones and make wine out of them or something because you can't sell them. But they were accepted because people knew what they were, and people had gotten lazier, I guess, and just wanted to buy it at the store. They didn't want to go <laughs> pick it and fight, fight the snakes to get it. So that's pretty much how Daddy got started with it. Now, building an industry on a fresh fruit that was not widely grown in large quantities could have been enough. But Papa Jacob, yeah, I I call him that too, he did not stop there. And that's why he called his grandson Chris about coming home. Let's pick the story back up with Chris now. When I graduated from college, he had started tinkering around with the idea of making things out of muscadines. So we had fruit that wasn't pretty enough, so to speak. You know, we were selling to grocery, started selling to grocery stores about that point. And he said, well, there's fruit that muscadines that aren't making it to the grocery store shelf. Do you want to try to make something out of those other ones? So that sounded neat to me, this idea of making something, you know. It's not bridges or roads, but it's making something. It's making something. (laughs) And and engineering in a large way is is helping to solve a problem, you know. And so the problem here was we have muscadines that weren't 
pretty enough to make it to market or that market, but they're still good and they're good enough to make something else out of. So that was the idea. It's like, okay, here's this problem. Now help me solve this. And so Georgian and I moved back from Atlanta. She started teaching down here. And I set up shop in the old chicken house behind his house. And that was my not, first Not building. the high-rise corner office you were thinking of. Not Atlanta. the corner office I had in mind, but it, it worked. And uh, so, yeah, so I would. that was my office. That was my lab. That was my manufacturing facility. Um, and we would, you know, outsource whatever needed to be outsourced. But we would just play around with ideas. How do we bottle muscadine juice? How do we dry the seeds? How do we, what else can we do? What else can we make? And how do we do it? That was the beginning, but it wasn't long before things began to grow, pun intended, with muscadines and with Polk Vineyards specifically. We're sitting inside a, a wine tasting room right now. That's a far cry from the chicken house. That's uh, way on <laughs> way on the back of your your family's <laughs> land where we're sitting. And there's two large uh, buildings <laughs> mm-hmm. that are in between. We're sitting in one, and and there's another one between us. The chicken house obviously has been quite an evolution since you came back home to yeah. to those humble beginnings. So kind of take us through the story of of how things developed, and it's fine to talk about failures as well as successes because there's certainly been both. Just take us through how the how this how this all became what it is today. Yeah, you're right. It's a lot of trial and error. And it's a lot of you know. I tell people sometimes we just make a mess and clean it up <laughs> for tomorrow, you know, and start again tomorrow. But uh, yeah, so we started out, you know, just literally taking juice and let's squeeze out some juice. Let's, what's a press look like? Let's buy a press. Let's take the juice. Let's try to get it in a condition that's suitable to bottle. How do we pasteurize it? Let's, maybe we can borrow the can- local canning plant. And then how do we get it from the juice in the kettle into the bottle and all of those, I mean, all of those different steps, you know. So we did that found people that would buy the juice and buy the different products that we were making. And it was local stores around here, you know, at the time. And then, okay, well, maybe there's an opportunity. So then we outgrew what we were doing. So then we would we worked with a co-packer one time up in North Georgia who bottled the juice, and they did a great job for us for that season. And then we were able to bring – then we said, okay, there's enough business to justify investing in our own bottling line. Let's bring it back home, you know, and then we – would do the packaging here. Along the way, we found out that muscadines are not only tasty, but they're good for you. So they have some health benefits that other grapes don't have and other fruits don't have. And so long story short, they're like a souped up grape and a souped up berry that Mother Nature that God gave us right here in the South. They don't grow anywhere else. And so, so we were able to start then partnering with research institutions around the South and around the country now who, you know, were looking for something natural and something unique to, to investigate. And so UGA uh, has been the one that we've worked with, I guess, most often through the years. Was that hard as a Georgia Tech grad to do too much with UGA? You know, <laughs> <laughs> I just let Papa Jacob have the conversation. <laughs> start the conversation. Hey, but no, they do some good work there, you know, as, as far as the food science. And then even in their College of Pharmacy, they were doing some really neat things that that Georgia Tech wasn't doing. So, you know, so, yes, yeah, so I could swallow my pride and, you know. UGA's a good school, man. <laughs> it's a good school. It's a really good school. So so they were doing things that, that we needed and they were interested in working with and kind enough to answer our calls and then answer my questions and then answer them again. So started researching the health benefits of muscadines and then that enabled us to process a different fraction of the muscadine. So we were doing the skins and the seeds and then... You know, then what else can we make? You know, there's always this this like 
maybe that's the engineer in me, but always thinking, okay, what else can we make? What else can this benefit as far as human health, you know? And so we were fortunate enough to receive some grant funds to further that research, those research projects. Anyway, we've, we've researched a lot of different fractions of the muscat ions, the properties of the muscat And then kind of, it's kind of built, and other people have taken on that challenge and that kind of, that, that, you know, the effort as well. So what had started as a fresh market product in local grocery stores and farmer's markets was then supplied to wineries in the southeastern United States. While the industry saw growth over the years with muscadine as a food or beverage product, it stayed very regional. But after years of research and the findings of greater benefits in muscadines when compared with other fruits, the muscadine's global awareness has started to grow. You go in a health food store and a lot of things you buy, a lot of things you see on the shelf, you've never seen it growing anywhere. You don't even know where it comes from or may not even know how to pronounce the name on the label. So it's like exotic is attractive in a health food store, whereas something that's exotic or different in a grocery setting is, mm, no, it's unfamiliar. I, I don't really want it. So what we found is that because it was not from their area, not in their backyard, and somewhat exotic, it had this unique story, you know, that we could tell that they found attractive. Because it wasn't from there. Because it wasn't from there. <laughs> it wasn't there. familiar it was and like, common to them. <laughs> exactly. The opposite <laughs> situation was a benefit. So the fresh market product and the juice that could be produced from it, combined with health benefits from this exotic fruit, created some interesting opportunities that sparked Papa Jacob to call his grandson with the engineering degree from Georgia Tech to come home a little earlier than he'd planned. But it was just in time for this family business as all of the new potential was just starting to take hold. Papa Jacob invited me to come back to the farm in 2002. And about that time, actually, Food Network had a little series called Food Finds, and they would highlight different things around the country. And so they did a segment on Georgia, and they went to Peach Farm, a Vidalia Onion Farm, and then they came here, and they interviewed my grandfather. And he was starting to make some of our products at that time, just tinkering around. Well, lo and behold, I mean, that thing just exploded. And I started farming... I farmed with mules for a little while and then bought a tractor and... By the 70s, cotton was on the decline. So Jacob decided to experiment with muscadines. The challenge was getting outsiders to give this wild southern grape a try. I was down in Jacksonville, Florida, went to a wholesaler, a big wholesaler down there and tried to get him to take the grapes. He said, no, I don't think I can sell these. So I went around to three different little fruit stands and they knew what they were and they bought them. And I said, now, if you need any more, call this wholesaler. <laughs> so in about three days, he called me and said, you know, I believe I'll take 200 boxes of those grapes. <laughs> Harvest time at Polk's only lasts six or seven weeks from late and July. It was before online e-commerce, you know, and, and going on the website and ordering stuff. So people would call and we'd, every time that thing would air, we would end up sending out tons of like little brochures for people to fill out and mail in and or call us and order so we saw that there was potential for business and so then in 2004 we formed muscadine products corporation which was the value-added arm of the farm so that was our value-added venture so they'll grow it and i make it so that was my grandfather jacob my dad gary and myself who started that company and so we built 
the building, well, part of the building we're sitting in right now in 04, a little more in 05, and it's just been this evolution and addition ever since. I think that's something that's unique to the type of business I kind of wanted to profile and capture starting with Paul Vineyards and Muscadine Products Corporation. You know, people think of, and maybe this is kind of a big city thing, and it, it happens in, in rural areas too. We invite somebody, they come down, they make a multi-million dollar, you know, $20, 30000000 million investment, and a huge facility goes up all at once, and 200 people come to work, and that's that's it's like that's what everyone's shooting for. But in rural areas, it's, it doesn't quite work that way. And if you're just trying to expand and do some value-added thing in corporation with, you know, a family farm, a family business, it just works a little differently. So I guess... Go through the economics of the family farm and yeah, business yeah, yeah. as far as just kind of doing things a piece at a time. So my parents raised me, they raised all of us, my siblings, with this idea that just grow where you're planted. Grow where you're planted. So whatever you put into something, that's what you're going to get out. And that idea is what I had in mind You know, when we started this. I said, okay, don't know where this is going to take us, but we're going to give it all we've got. But let's start with what we've got, and let's grow where we're planted. And you're right. It's so different than recruiting an international firm to come in and make this you know, big-time investment. But we started with what we had, and it's been a lot of fun to make what we can make and then invest a little more and a little more and a little more along the way. I mean, we hadn't arrived anywhere yet. So when people come out and visit, I tell them, well, we hadn't arrived anywhere yet because there's always – somebody bigger and somebody who, but they grew where they were planted probably if they're in a similar kind of business. I mean, you look at other wineries or value-added facilities, you know. That's what we need to keep in mind in rural Georgia is that we need to encourage those who are here to grow where they're planted. I mean, if we can do this 15 miles from our hometown of Osceola, Georgia, I think it's possible anywhere in Georgia. You know, there are things that people can grow on the coast and do on the coast that I can't do here. There are people, there are things people can do up in the northeast Georgia that I can't do here. So grow where you're planted there and, you know, just make it all it can be. And your grandfather certainly uh, kind of did that. I mean, that's part of the Muscadine story, at least from your family's perspective, is he found something that would work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that yeah, was, yeah. That yeah, was exactly. why Muscadine started here. Yeah, he said, let's, what is something we can grow that's native? We're working with Mother Nature you know, and, and that he can take hold of and control. We got started, and with the ingredients, what was exciting, what is exciting to me is that while muscadines are a regional fruit grown here, you know, we're here in Georgia, growing them in Georgia, that now that reach gets outside of our state line, it gets outside of the country, and people who've never seen a muscadine nor heard of one, now they're consuming it in some form or fashion with somebody else's label on it, but it's Muscadines are on the label. Right. So that's exciting to know because now we're able to scale muscadines in a way that we couldn't have if we said, no, we're just going to stick with our jars of jelly and however far it goes, it goes. We backed up and kind of went a different route to get it in the hands of people who could get it around the world. Mm-hmm. So that's that's been a lot of fun. What's been even more fun for the Polk family, as well as our community in Irwin County, is what Polk Vineyards has started into just a few years ago. Yeah, the most recent part of our business has been our winery. And so today we make 17 wines from our muscadines, and those all have our label on it. What we realized from the ingredients and then those food products, we 
still make, and our labels are on the food products, is that we needed to be able to tell a story no one else was telling and to create an experience that no one else could create. And so we could do that with wine. I mentioned earlier about the ingredients. There are companies out there who have a customer base and they can tell a story or create an experience I couldn't create. And it was just tough for me to do with our consumer products of health products. You know, With the wine, we could tell a story no one else can tell. We can create an experience no one else could create. And through selling fresh muscadines to wineries all over the South, from North Carolina to Mississippi to Florida, we'd seen some best practices. We'd seen, you know, the style of wines that consumers appear to enjoy. So we said, well, let's take some notes and let's add more value to what we are making. You say experience. I'm looking out the front window of your tasting room and across the street, I see the rows of muscadines. So mm-hmm. you're sitting in the middle mm-hmm. of hundreds of acres of the same exact muscadines that I'd be drinking. If I, and maybe we'll get to that later. I can drink some wine. It's a good idea. I think we should. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about it because that, that aspect of it, you've always had people come out to the farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, mm-hmm. you should tell the story of, of how the pick your own and where, mm. where the pick your own was, was specifically came to be. placed. <laughs> yeah. I always find that entertaining, <laughs> with, especially in light of what you're doing now. But but the I guess the agritourism part, and that's what yeah. a lot of family farm businesses are doing, and it's having a pretty nice impact for the communities because yeah. of the, the people that come. And yes, of course, they spend and generate sales tax dollars here on site, but they also usually go somewhere else in the community they may not have gone before. So so talk about that aspect of it. And, and like I said, start with the story of the pick your own. Yeah, so our first um, <laughs> experience with... Agritourism. I don't think if it, I don't know if it was a word. Oh no, no, they didn't call it that. It then. wasn't a word then. <laughs> no. So it was actually down County Line Road at the entrance to where our A-frame cabin and and that is located is across the road from a couple's house. So they would watch it for us. My grandfather took the cooler part of a like a refrigerated truck. He just took the bed and set it on the ground and wired it straight, wired it into the. <laughs> into the panel and there's your cooler and he had like a little lean-to shelter that mr richardson would kind of keep an eye on people wanted to come get some grapes that's about two miles away from where we're sitting <laughs> sitting now so and, and i think that was by design if i remember correctly yeah, yeah and if you're driving 55 miles an hour down that road you'll pass it and never know you went past it so now those were day those were you know what decades before social media and GPS and the technologies we have today. So anyway, I don't know how in the world people even found out about it, but that's where he had it. So that was the first experiment, I guess you could say, with uh, hosting consumer- <laughs> a, hidden, a hidden cooler uh, two miles away. Yeah, from- <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like <laughs> a base. yeah, like a uh, scavenger hunt. So then he moved it to it would bounce back and forth. Eventually, it was. The other end of the chicken house where my office, my first <laughs> office was located. So it was, he had like a little porch on the end of a chicken house. Kind of hard to picture if you can picture a small chicken house and then add a porch on the end of a screened in porch. And he had some big refrigerators in there. And so he'd put boxes of muscadines in there and people could come. And, and he had some rows behind that where people could go and pick their own. But his goal at the time was to sell muscadines to grocery stores and to sell like truckloads okay and and pickup truckloads he was interested in bulk and bulk, <laughs> bulk yeah. sales i want to sell bulk pallets <laughs> of you know that kind of thing so it was half a mile down a dirt road 
And then you turn back and go to this screened-in porch that was only open August and September, and he'd put an ad in the local shopper, little flyer, maybe put an ad in the, in the Oak Hill Star from time to time and say, hey, we're open. If you want them, there they are. That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't anything, you know, real extravagant. But again, not everybody could find us. We couldn't, you know, we couldn't talk to everybody like we can today. So it was just, it was real, it was almost comical. Obviously, it wasn't a priority at the time. No, no, it wasn't a priority. It's just kind of don't get in the way of what we're doing. You know, we were going to be putting, taking pallets of driving pallets of muscadines onto bigger trucks. And so if you want them to take home with you from our farm, you need to go down that dirt road and go to that screen in porch. It might be open. <laughs> so, so then. <laughs> Fast forward, that was, you know, through the 90s, 80s, 90s, and then up to the early 2000s. And uh, so we had gone from farming to manufacturing, started making these ingredients and these other products. And in 2017, I approached him with the idea of making our own wine. So he was very supportive of that, and we acquired our, you know, federal permit to make wine. We got our state license to make wine. And with the same model, in our minds, the same model of the fresh fruit. Hey, look, we've been selling to big stores and grocery stores and farmer's markets. So yeah, I think we can just do the same thing. That'd be good. And so we did that and quickly realized that we had the opportunity to do something different, not just make something different, but create a whole new experience. And honestly, with new technology, it afforded us the ability to get on social media and interact with people and just through our website to do e-commerce like we'd never done before. With that, because we're making wine now, there's this expectation from the consumer that they can come and try it. So I quickly realized that we needed to create a space for that. And I'm so glad we did because now... Instead of us exporting our product out of Irwin County and exporting our product out of Georgia and then even beyond the country, we were able to bring people to the farm to spend money and to experience our products here on the farm locally. Instead of exporting your product, you imported your consumer. Exactly right. That's what agritourism is all about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we didn't realize what the demand for that was. I mean, we saw our winery customers that we were selling grapes to doing that, but until you do it yourself, you go, oh, wow, this is what this is all about. You know, so. so with the winery specifically in the tasting room is, is the most recent example. Talk about, because the, the thing I think people don't realize is the economic impact of what in a bigger city would just be considered some little small family operation, but mm -hmm. in a rural area, that family operation is a big deal. It has more impact. We have a lower population, so every job just counts a little more, yeah, <laughs> you know, as yeah, a per absolutely. capita kind of thing. So mm -hmm. talk about the the jobs that are created by this operation and all aspects of it yeah. and kind of how you've seen the the impact of, of the most recent business with the winery and, mm -hmm. and agritourism and the people you're bringing here. So back in the 70s when they were growing just muscadines, we would hire high school students and people who would work seasonally in the area. They lived in the area and they would just work, just kind of migrate from crop to crop. And we would hire those people. They lived here locally. They were born here. They lived here, but they worked different crops throughout the seasons. Those days are gone. But we would hire, you know, for the crop of two or 300 
acres of muscadines. It was probably 50 people or something like that. Fast forward to today, and with the acreage we grow, we have about 15 to 20 people on the farm year-round. And then seasonally, we have two to 300 people here. They're migrant workers who come in as a crew to pick the crop, to pick the muscadines. What you find in stores, the muscadines that you eat as a table grape are all hand harvested. So that's what the farm's impact has in our business, in Muscadine Products Corporation. There are 10 of us year-round. So that's everybody from our team who help make the juices and produce the wines and dry the seeds to you know office staff and quality control and sales staff and all of that. But then with the tasting room, there are probably just in our four years of existence, we have three full-time equivalents. It's a weekend-driven kind of business, so it gets really busy on the weekends and not so busy on a Tuesday morning. <laughs> but uh, it's probably, you know, there are three of us, three people here, full, you know, full-time equivalents who are working in our store. And like you said, that's a big deal here. Well, you that's, know, that's three extra jobs that didn't exist at all. And, exactly. And in right. a big city, that's just called, you know, Tuesday morning. But yeah. here, you know, yeah, it's a big three, deal. Three jobs when your county population is less than 10,000. Yeah. And, and like our 10 and the 20 or 30 who work on the farm, these people live here. They have families. They're raising their families here. They own their home. They buy cars. They're invested in our community as well. And that's very important. So that's why I said earlier, it's just so important for us to grow where we're planted because somebody else could do this somewhere else, but it wouldn't be here in our community. Right. You know, so it's a, it's a big deal. Something that's uh, a little more exciting now by the Muscadine, it's recently been named, uh, given a very official status in, in the great state of Georgia. So talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. So a couple of years ago, State Senator Tyler Harper, our state senator here, he sponsored a bill that names the muscadine as the state grape of Georgia. And that's very exciting for us. Yeah, yeah. You know, that designation, yeah. So talk about that, because I think, you, didn't you have to go, uh, you had to, quote, testify before a Yes, <laughs> a yes, Senate so I went panel. up to the Senate Ag Committee meeting to testify about the, the scope of muscadines. Yeah. You know, the fact they grow from state line to state line, north, south, east, west, that all the things you can make out of muscadines. Uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. Chris's testimony to that Senate Agriculture Committee was similar to the story of the muscadine that you heard at the beginning of the episode. It was a very official process, and a full vote was held by the Georgia State Senate and Georgia State House, and the bill was eventually signed by the governor. I hope without opposition the muscadine was made, but I won't ask for anyone's voting record on that to hold them to task. But, but it's official now. The muscadine, it was unanimous, I'll say. <laughs> the muscadine is the official grape of the state of Georgia. It is. It is. All right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And in and, uh, and, and no small part because of the hundreds of acres grown right here in Irwin County and what I believe is the world's largest muscadine, or at least that's what we're going to claim until someone shows us one that's bigger. Yep. Yep. So that's right. So yeah, here, and actually, so muscadine, there are more acres of muscadines. That was another thing with the, with the bill is there are more muscadines grown in Georgia than any other variety, any other kind of grape. Mm -hmm. There are other kinds of grapes grown up in North Georgia that we can't grow here. Right. But, but they don't have nearly the acreage of those. Exactly. We're talking dozens you right. know, up there, and there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds here. And with respect to us, 
I tell people that Pulp Vineyards is the largest popcorn shrimp in the ocean. So, <laughs> so, so are there are there larger fish? Yes, but of popcorn shrimp, so muscadines of muscadines. You know, are there people who grow more grapes than us? Oh yeah, absolutely. But does anybody else grow more muscadines? No. So of popcorn shrimp, <laughs> by golly, we're the largest. Good way to say it. With all of Chris's experience and the experience of his family and their farming operation over the years, I asked him what he would want the general public to know and to do to support family operations like his. What is something that you would, I guess, speak to the audience and tell them how they can support not only Pog Vineyards, but other family farm operations? Because like we keep saying, this is a big deal and this your family's farm is a huge deal in Irwin County and it has an economic impact as well as other impacts. So what would you say to somebody, whether it's, it's somebody around here, you want them to come to, to Pog Vineyards mm-hmm. or they live somewhere else and there's something similar that they could go support. How can they support it and why is it important? I would say first, keep an eye out for it. You know, when you're in the grocery store, look for Georgia Grown. When you're in a local store, in a gift shop or a specialty store or any kind of store that would carry independently made products, look for those, you know, and, and just kind of see, okay, where's this place? Who made this? Just be mindful of who's behind the product, you know, that you're picking up and support those folks, support the local producers. And then when you're out and about, keep an eye out for those destinations, you know, because it is it is amazing to us in our tasting room here. We have a cork map of the United States, and I put it up after some people traveled from way off out of state to visit us. And I said, "Lord, I need to document this <laughs> some way, you know, just to see like, wow, somebody from South Florida came all the way up here, and somebody from Maine passed through here, and you know that kind of thing." But be mindful of those folks around you. I mean, I'm guilty like everybody of flying down the interstate, and you know, and just point A to point B, and I want to get there as fast as I can, but, you know, stop. Take the back roads, y'all. Take the back roads. Yeah, take the back roads. Because, uh, you know, you might find something that you never knew existed and, and, and encounter a really neat experience. I mean, I think about, you know, some friends in Enigma who grow other berries. I think about a friend up in Wilcox County who has all kinds of oils, and I think about, you know, the farm on the other side of Albany, west of Albany, that does pumpkins, you know, a lot of pumpkins, you know, and so it's really neat, you know, what other people are doing. And, and so, and when you support that local establishment, that local farm, that local business, say somebody had to grow it and sell it to the big box store, but the big box store profited the most, yeah. you know, and they're the one employing people in that big city, in that big box store, you know, whereas if you bought it from the local producer on the roadside, you know, you're supporting those local jobs, and it's, it is vital to that community. Well, Chris, thanks for being a part of the green shoots here in Irwin County. Thanks for talking with us. Oh, man, so grateful to be here. Well, a little later after we sat down and talked for that recorded interview, we did take the opportunity to sample some of Polk Vineyard's delicious muscadine wines. All right, well, here we are, back in the tasting room, but this time with uh, with some friends, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> enjoying a, a glass of Pog Vineyards wine. So, Chris, which which one are we we got here? Which one is this? Yeah, so this is Jacob. Jacob is our semi sweet red muscadine wine. Okay. Jacob was our one of our first wines that we made. So we have six muscadine wines that are named after family members. Jacob, of course, was my late grandfather. 
and his wife, my grandmother, Judy, or as we called her, Mama Judy, but Juliet. So Jacob and Juliet were the first two wines, red and white, that we made. And so this is, so yeah, Jacob's our semi-sweet red muscadine wine. All right, well, I'll toast to Jacob then. Mm-hmm. I always did like Jacob. Mm-hmm. He's a good man. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, thanks for letting me uh, do this. I've, I mean, I've always, I've, I've been glad to, to know you for so long. And so obviously I knew a good bit of what we talked about today, but I wanted to share it with other people, but I, I learned a few new things. This is just such a, a great story. And I just really wanted to kind of put it out there for people to see that you know, a lot of people talk about kind of rural areas being dead or, you know, downward spiral. And I just mm. think there's so many stories about the green shoots, as I say, of revitalization and the impact that something that would be seemingly small or maybe would be small and less significant in a, you know, a big city metropolitan area. But here it's a big deal. It's creating jobs. It's bringing people in, like we talked about you, importing mm-hmm. consumers, which mm-hmm. is always nice. And so, yeah, it's just a, just a great story. So thanks for, uh, for being a part of this, for supporting us, and, and for letting me share this with everyone. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, it's been, been a pleasure, and, and it's always fun for us to tell our story, invite people into this story. But it's bigger than us, too, because... I would say don't stop with us. You know, don't, okay. don't stop with us. There are a lot of other folks out there doing great things in some other rural communities. Can you point me in some directions? We'll, we'll do some future episodes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'd love to introduce you to some of my friends. Okay. And if we do that, does that mean I, I get some free wine every time I, I do one? Well, why don't we mix it up? <laughs> we'll do a different one next time. All right. Sounds good. All right, everybody. Well, you heard it here. I get free wine if I go uh, see some of Chris's friends and, and do more episodes of Green Shoots. So uh, we'll, we'll see you on the next one. All right. Thank you much. I want to thank all of you so much for listening to the first ever episode of Green Shoots about my friends at Pog Vineyards and Muscadine Products Corporation. My good friend Chris Polk said he would introduce me to some others doing great things in rural communities, and you all heard him say I'd get free wine each time. So stay tuned for upcoming episodes. To make sure you know when the latest Green Shoot story is available for you to hear, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or go to our website at www.greenshootspodcast.org. Until then, keep your eye out for the Green Shoots in your community, and maybe I'll see you around in the Polk Vineyards Tasting Room.